So we begin with chapter 7. And uh, I may not read quite as much. Of course, you never know what I might do. But um, the interesting question that starts out with as uh, Screwtape is writing to his nephew is, you know, should we keep our existence to the humans a secret or should we let them know we exist? Um, and, and not just as sort of a group policy, but also for uh, screw tape in particular. And he says, currently for the moment, um, our policy is that we conceal ourselves um, because there are advantages, there are advantages to concealing ourselves. If they don't believe that we exist, then humans don't really treat Satan and devils as a real thing, right? They sort of get drowsy and fall asleep about it. Um, you know, but when they, when we believe that they exist, they can't, the devils can't tempt us toward materialism and skepticism. So if we don't think they exist, then there's no need to consider anything outside of material reality, right? God, devils, or anything like that, which is kind of the current, we're in that current uh, movement where most people, well, the, the current is that those things don't really exist. Or, you know, uh, Satan is just sort of a name for evil in general, but, but there's not like a personal, you know, satanic um, entity, that kind of thing. So because of that, then, um, devils become predominantly comic figures. Um, and the modern imagination can, can keep, you know, thinking of, of devils as, you know, like the sun devils or, you know, or like some kind of entity with, with a pitchfork and horns and everything else. And so you don't really have to take, take the devil seriously, that kind of thing. Um, and then he goes on to say that all extremes should be encouraged. Okay. Um, and he says some, in some ages, we try to just get people to be lukewarm about everything, but in the current age, um, things tend to be very much unbalanced and full of factions. And so he says, one of the temptations you can apply to a person or to, to your, your patient, as he would say, is to try to get him into a faction, try to get him on the extremes. And I mean, this, this really resonates with me if, if you were to look at the, uh, you know, our country right now, I think, um, you know, because even as Screwtape is saying, you know, if we can get, if we can get the person to the point of, of contemplating violence against another person merely because, you know, they're a member of another church or of another political party, then that's, that's just another way to tempt them, you know, violence in the heart. Um, and so if you look at our political landscape, you know, I mean, you can, you can make enemies by, by telling somebody what news channel you watch, right? And everyone here says, heck yeah, you can. We don't like those people who watch Fox News. <laughs> Unless I have my audience wrong. Um, but you know, even if you, if you <laughs> but if you watch, okay, let's say you watch Fox News and then you watch like MSNBC, like you can tell those channels, I mean, you know, a person might agree more with one than the other, and, and that's fine. That's totally fine. But you can also tell that those channels intentionally are sort of 
you know, encouraging a, a faction. You know, they're, they're encouraging, they're sort of baiting people to see the other channel in a, in a negative and hostile light. Um, and, and of course, the reason they're doing it, okay, this is me, this is, you know, psh, opinion. Um, the reason, you know, I think they're, it's all about rate, it's all about money and ratings. They're selling a product. I mean, we'd really like to think they, they really believe what they're saying. <laughs> and maybe some of them do, but they're in the entertainment business. And all of them will do whatever it takes to sell stuff as well. And I, I just think it's important to, to recognize that because they're so good. All, this, all the channels are so good at drumming up emotion. Even sports channels do this. I used to listen to sports talk radio all the time. And inevitably, you'd have two commentators and they do this on, on, the new, on the sports channels also, you know, like Fox Sports and ESPN and everything else. And they get two people and they, they throw up a topic, you know, pull, and they start shooting at it. And they always pick completely opposite sides. And you know darn well they probably don't, uh, they don't disagree that much. But the conflict makes for great TV. And that's why they all do it, because people love to watch the conflict, which is also another thing to really just kind of consider why do we love to and then of course we tend to get sick of it you know we tend to get tired of it too but then we go back to it anyway what that taps into is a little bit of what what the temptation here is that when we get caught up in that you know we get we get ourselves sort of um, on one side against the other what it can do is it can create this sort of conflict or desire to have conflict with people I mean look at I remember with the last election it was amazing. I couldn't believe all the people telling me. I wasn't here yet, right? No, no. It was, oh, that's right. Okay. Let me get my, my times right. So down in Phoenix, I, there were people coming to me saying that it was like breaking up marriages and breaking up families and people were not talking to each other. I can't even go to, I can't even talk to my parents. I can't even talk to my kids. I can't even, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Um, so it's just an interesting thing. Like, how, why do we get ourselves into such a frenzy like that? Because we do. Well, but so these are the things to consider. That's the whole point of what we're doing in this class. Why do we do that? Getting ourselves into cliques, into factions, you know, Ash Fork against, against uh, you know, Williams and against Seligman. And I don't know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of that, but, you know, or whites against Hispanics, that's a big one. That happens, I've, I've seen that since I've been up here. Um, you know, as opposed to, we're just Catholic. We're just all Catholics, you know? We got this one knucklehead priest, and we're all in the same, we're all stuck in the same boat with this guy, you know? There's a commonality there. But it happens, and, and we get ourselves into these, these cliques and factions, which, you know, which bring us to, to actually perhaps not, you know, real violence, but it creates divisions among us if we're not careful. And, and of course, the great, the, the great temptation that Satan is always trying to get us into is division. The, the great thing that God is always trying to get us into is unity. You know, unity, being together, being one, you know, one body in the Lord. Satan is always trying to divide us. So when... You know, even when you have in a, in a particular community, I mean, if you have people within a church who are trying to bring about division, you know, it's, it's, it's actually like the most satanic thing that can, can happen in a community. They're doing the work of Satan for them. 
because they're actually trying to bring about division. Um, so, it, and, and I've seen it in every parish I've been in. It just always happens, always happens. Um, okay, and this is what he talks about as he goes on here with, uh, you know, factions. And, and he says it's, it's happened all the way back, you know, with St. Paul and Apollos and Corinth. And then he talks about the high and low parties of the Church of England. It happens in the church in other ways, like, you know, the, the, the conservative Catholics as opposed to those godless liberal Catholics, you know, all that stuff. Um, it happens in the priesthood in, in, along those same lines. Um, it, just, it just, it happens more and more and more. And so the, the difficult, it's really hard to be unified because there are so many sort of temptations that to, to pull ourselves apart and to, to differentiate ourselves. It's just a very common thing. Okay. And then he goes on to sort of politics here, and he talks about how the temptation is to, um, to use whatever he, whatever this, this man pursues, try to use it or redirect it uh, toward something which is going to be, take his focus off eternity. So if it's politics, you know, try to get him focused on making the world the end as opposed to keeping his mind on eternity and God. So that's why Lewis is gonna drop in you know, communism, which seeks to cure all ills through an ec economic program, right? To, and to create a, a sort of utopia or a heaven on earth. Um, anything that would seek to make earth and this life an end, as opposed to you know, a, a means to an end, is going to take people away from God. Um, this is why St. Benedict, you've probably heard me say it in a homily, maybe um, St. Benedict said, keep death before you always. Now, he was saying that in the, in the 500s, so it, it, I think it was the 500s. So it's, it sounds a little extreme, keep death before you always. Well, what he just meant was keep in mind that you're going to eternity. Keep that in, in, in the front of your mind all the time that you are destined for eternity. And so what we do here has, has an effect on our eternal destiny. And so if, if you can tempt people to make the world an ends and even faith as a means to that end. So for instance, um, a person could potentially get focused on social justice causes and be a really good Christian. You know, they're a really good Christian, they're very faithful, but they're so focused on social justice and, and trying to bring about an end to, you know, it could be, any kind of discrimination or, or, or whatever, what have you, or poverty or whatever cause. But if the focus is trying to make the world an end as opposed to a means, right? Because we know we're never gonna solve all that stuff. So you can, so you can actually find a person using their faith and living their faith and seeming like you know, a, a wonderful Christian, and probably in many ways they are, but they're actually not working for heaven they're actually working for security and earth if they don't have their priorities straight. That doesn't mean that any social justice activity does that. It just means that we have to understand every, that, that uh, we have to keep in mind our eternal destiny no matter what we participate in. So if we're, if we're working to alleviate discrimination or injustice or you know, poverty, that, that that's a good thing, but it's always temporary anyway. Right? It's always a temporary fix because ultimately um, all of those things should serve toward an ultimate end, an eternal destiny. 
Okay, I'm going to move on to eight. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. I mean, they were all pretty good, but the law, he calls this the law of undulation. And, uh, you know, he notes that we are half spirit and half animal. And so as spirits, we belong to the eternal world, but as animals, we inhabit time. He says this means that while their spirits can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy is undulation. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks, the ups and downs of life. So the only, the only real constancy we have are these ups and downs. We expect, uh, you know, our affection for friends, our physical appetites, they all go up and down. Um, there's going to be emotional ups and downs, you know, rich, uh, richness and liveliness will alternate. And then ultimately, though, a person will go through this spiritual dryness and dullness. Um, to decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what the enemy wants to make of it. And, he's, and he notes, and, and this is, again, all this stuff is like right in line with all of the spiritual writers throughout history. Of course, Screwtape is basically teaching us what, what spirituality is, but he's doing it you know, in a twisted way, right? Um, so, so he comments that God relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform, conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So, of course, he's, you know, in that, in that passage, he's talking, he's talking about what it means to, to surrender to Christ. You know, that that is something that... Um, you know, it doesn't just happen once. It's something that we have to work on repeatedly, this self-surrender, this giving over the self. Um, the great, uh, to, to, to walk into a little bit of hard theology here, uh, the great uh, theologian uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar talks about man's innate desire for freedom. We all desire an unlimited freedom, a freedom without limit. But we can't secure that freedom without limit for ourselves because we are limited in our freedom, right? We have limited freedom.
but we still desire unlimited freedom. And, and people will try to, try to live their lives for all kinds of freedoms and, and kind of do whatever they want and find that that actually doesn't lead to freedom. But they still desire, you know, infinite freedom. And what he says is that the only way that a being with limited freedom can possess or acquire infinite freedom is to place its freedom within an infinite freedom, God. So God is infinitely free. So the path to freedom without limit is to freely give ourselves over to God who has the ability to give us that freedom, which of course can't be realized in this life, but, but can be realized in the next. Does that make sense? So it's all about the giving over, the free act of giving over the self to God who is fully free and then bestows upon us freedom. This is why, you know, in a marriage, when a marriage is going well, there's such a wonderful um, image of, of what God does. Because ideally, you know, a, a married couple realizes their, um, their good or their desires from the giving of the other. So the, so the man seeks to secure his wife's good, right, and, and, and um, you know, her joy. He seeks to, to secure that joy for her, and she in turn seeks to secure it for him. And what you have is this, what's called this, this mutual self-donation or self-giving, so that the other is the one who actually provides the joy and the goodness that you're looking for. And this is exactly what God does. This is exactly what he wants to do. He wants us to figure out and learn that the desire is a good desire to want that kind of freedom and joy but, um, and pleasure and, and all, of the, all of the rest, but that it can only ultimately be, to the extent that we desire it, right, to that great extent, we can only ultimately have it in him alone. But he doesn't make it easy. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's what he talks about next. So here we go. Because he talks about free will. Because he says, this is where the trough comes in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses at any moment. Why don't we feel God right next to us all the time? Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if we felt God right away all the time, wouldn't we be more faithful? Wouldn't we? And why doesn't he do that? You know, why doesn't he give us that sensation? And so here a devil explains it to us. <laughs> But you see now that the irresistible and indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning, but sooner or later he withdraws. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. The reason why it pleases him best is because it's, it's relatively unaided by his grace. When we feel really, really close to God and it's easy to pray, 
it's easy to pray because he's, he's giving us that assistance, you know? He's giving us his grace. But when we don't feel close to him and we, we wonder where he's gone, you know, or when he's coming back or, you know, life just stinks right now, and yet we still pray, we still go to church, we still act charitably, we still, you know, we, we power through it. The reason why it means so much more is because we're doing so much more of the lifting, the heavy lifting on our own. And what it's doing ultimately is it's reforming our nature to an even greater degree. He says this, he cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and, and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with the stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's, that's the point at which... And it's, it's just interesting to consider that. You know, it's, it's, in, it's in our worst moments. It's in our moments of sometimes, you know, deepest sadness or even, even despair or, or depression or, you know, just a, a lack of, of a sense of God or even, even when we've sinned and, and, and it's hard to pray because we think we can hide from God or it's hard to go to church because, you know, that or something. That when we still do what we know is right, and we still do what we know we ought to do, it's in those moments we're growing the most. All right? All right. Um, so I'm just going to make a couple comments about the next one where he kind of talks about how to, how to um, exploit these dry spells. And one of, the, one of the things he talks about is pleasure, um, sexual pleasure first. Um, but he also extends that to other, other desires of the flesh. He says, never forget then what, that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. Okay, so instead, um, so it's not pleasure itself, you know, so pleasure, you know, within marriage and pleasure within, you know, other things. Pleasure is not a bad thing at all. So what, it's, it's a godly thing, you know, because God gave us that. So instead, what Satan tries to do is he tries to distort that. He tries to distort the pleasures so that they're used either excessively or even, you know, not at all. You know, a person resists all pleasures or, um, or they're, they're distorted out of their, their sort of natural form. Um, let's see. He talks about religion and says that, uh, you know, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. If you, can, if you can get him to sort of uh, weaken his faith by, by saying, well, you know, only so much of that, you don't want to go overboard with religion, you know, then, 
you can sort of lull someone to sleep by just making it milk, you know, uh, uh, lukewarm. Um, okay, and keep moving. In 10, he meets some new friends. And these apparently are the right sorts of people to be friends with. And so the temptation is uh, to use these friends to corrupt him. Um, and so he says he must soon realize that his own faith is in direct opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversations of his new friends is based. Persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact. So he's apparently met some friends who are, you know, Christian, but they're not really Christian or they're sort of fakers, you know, but they're good people to know. Uh, they're useful friendships, if you will. And, and so... You can't interrupt me when I'm talking. Everybody at home, there's a lesson for you. You get detention. So... Um, so the letters are coming from Screwtape to, to uh, his nephew, and his nephew is tempting Bob. You know, his patient doesn't have a name, okay? So, so when he's saying he, he's talking about the human. Yeah, so, so the human is the one who has met these friends, and they're like useful friends. They're like maybe socialite type. I mean, that's the sense I get. They're like socialites and... You know, that kind of thing. Um, and he says, try to, try to get him so that you, you notice there's a, there's a thread in here of like, try never to get him to, to see things as they really are. Try to, try to never get him on the path of seeking truth. So keep it close to him that these new friends and their opinions contradict his own. But instead, just try to get him to pretend to fit in with these new friends, okay? Because, and what he says here is, all mortals tend to turn into the thing they are pretending to be. So if you get, if you get him to pretend to be somebody who's aloof about his religion and is just sort of focused on the right relationships, you know, there are people who, who join churches because of the connections, you know, in, in those churches. There are particular churches where if you belong to those churches, you're making business connections, you're getting to know the right people, and, it's, and it becomes very often more about that than it becomes about the religion. Um, and so it's another way to corrupt the religious, uh, what would seem to be the relig religiosity of, 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 a, of a person or a group of people. Sure, keep them focused on just going to church because they're going to see so-and-so after church or at church or they're going to be seen at church. Um, keep them focused on all of that stuff because as long as they're doing that, they're not doing the real thing, right? They're not really open to, to, to the Lord and to what he wants to give them. Um, let's see. So, so, yeah, he talks about that. So, you know, either get him to realize that he's living two parallel lives, he's living in this sort of socialite world and this religious world, and get him to be content with the contradiction, or 
Um, which again, that, that happens all the time in, in the scenario I just, I just laid out for you that you know, people are being religious or pretending at religion for other purposes and the contradiction just doesn't bother them at all. Um, or um, you can even get them to the point where um, you can get them to take a sort of pleasure in that fact. I've seen that too. Holy cow. I've seen that a lot. People, people actually take pleasure in the fact that they, it's bizarre. They take pleasure in the fact that they like go to church every Sunday, but then, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod at, at the other guy going to church who they were just going out on a, you know, Friday night on a bender and womanizing. Like they actually take pleasure in that kind of contradiction. Seen it, seen it, you know. No one here, no one here. Well, not yet. <laughs> but I've seen it. I've seen it. And I'm not, by the way, I'm, I do not want you to think that, I mean, not that particular one, but I don't want you to think at all that some of these same issues are not alive and have been alive at different times in me, you know, in the whole book. I mean, I, I'm reading it along with you and going, ah, dang it, you know, or, yeah, I used to see my, I used to do that kind of stuff. And now I'm over here, but uh, now I'm doing this stuff, you know. So that, that if, if some of this stuff is provoking or some of this reading is provoking this insight in you, it's also provoking it in me. So I do not want you to think that um, I'm just the guy talking. Okay. Um, okay, we'll skip that. We'll go to 11. And he's talking about... Um, here, he's talking about an interesting thing about a joy um, or things that cause human laughter. Joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first joy among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the wake of jokes is usually provided, but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows that they are not the real cause. What the real cause is, we don't know. I mean, devils have no clue what the real cause of joy is and where jokes come from or, you know. Remember, Lewis constructs hell and the devils to be this just very serious group of people who are focused on efficiency and, and doing their job and, you know, joy, jokes, fun. They don't know anything about it. Um, he says something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art which the humans call music. And something like it occurs in heaven. Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged because the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and, are, and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The joyless Catholic. The grumpy, joyless, sad sack Catholic. I, it's, it's, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of stuff that gets a person, like, whether they were Catholic or not, they'd probably be that way because there's other stuff in their life that contributes to that. But, but you know, the people, <laughs> the people who practice their faith in such a way, there is a particular parish, and I don't want to say which one it is because there's probably some of those parishioners listening at home, but... Um, of course, I wouldn't be listening if they were a part of this group, but, um, 
they were they were so upset that I would I would make jokes in my homilies, and uh, and they they complained they complained you know that I was being too funny you know because I was just too I wasn't reverent enough. He's got to be more reverent. Stop it with the jokes, you know. Be more serious. I was like, well, I don't want to tell you what I thought, but I don't want that on tape. Um, but I was like, I'm not going to change who I am for some reason that is a mystery to me and a mystery to many others god called me to the priesthood and there are certainly appropriate places for my personality to come out you'll notice while i'm saying mass and saying the prayers i'm not cracking jokes i'm taking that deadly seriously because it's a it's a very serious time but i mean i used to not pay attention to homilies all the time too and you got to help people out, you know? If they're going to listen to you for, for even a short period of time, you got to help them out a little bit. Anyway, so, but the, the Catholic who is, is so serious, you know, and none of their kids can laugh, their wife can't laugh, nobody can laugh, there's no joy. I, I, obviously, I think there's something wrong there. Um, there. There has to, if it's not about joy, if we don't believe in God because we think we're going to have greater joy, then I would say maybe, I don't try something else because you've got God wrong. You've got God wrong. Fun is closely related to joy. It's a sort of emotional, it's just funny how he talks about it. It's sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. It's very little use to us. <laughs> it can sometimes be used to divert humans for something else which the enemy would like them to, to be feeling or doing. But in itself, it has wholly undesirable tendencies. It promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils. <laughs> so remember, he's the guy who wrote the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, right? I mean, he wrote children's books also. And, um, you know, had demonstrated all kinds of fun and joy and pleasures and, you know, wonderful things. And... Um, so, so Lewis's perspective on this is, is going to be filled with that, and I think it's right. Um, the joke proper, then, which turns on a sudden perception of incongruity, is a much more promising field. Um, so the joke can be used um, in, in many different ways to, as a means of destroying shame, you know, uh, you know, dirty jokes or something like that. It can destroy shame. It can actually chip away at, at appropriate behaviors, etc. cetera. Um, but ultimately, um, flippancy is the best of all. Flippancy now is, is actually what Satan would like out of us. Any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it. But every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It's a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens the intellect and it excites no affection between those who practice it. Uh, that kind of flippancy, uh, there, there's people who demonstrate that to, to me, you know, and to priests all the time. Uh, you can see it's people who, they go to church, but they don't, they're never taking it seriously. 
You know, there's always a flippant remark or a flippant joke or a, you know, and sometimes it even goes into sarcasm. And it, there, you know, when I, and when I meet that, I just kind of think, well, there's kind of a sadness there that this person always has to be, it's, it's almost like it's a, like it's, it's an armor plating against getting real with God or anything religious, you know, because at a certain point, you can't be a child anymore. You have to get real and you have to, you know, really put in the hard work of becoming a Christian and turning your life over to Christ. And a person who, who practices their faith, but just kind of remains flippant about it, like everything's a joke and everything's not really there. You know, there's never a time we get serious about our faith. So this is the opposite end of what I was talking about before of the person who's always serious. Now you have the person who's never serious. You know, like, like Good Friday is a day to be really, we are just talking about Good Friday. Good Friday is a, a day to be pretty serious. You know, it's not really a time to, to be joking. It's not that there can't be any joy on that day, but it's a day to be focused on a very serious reality, you know. And flippancy in the face of that, right, uh, would be clearly somebody trying to inoculate themselves um, from having to engage God at a, at a heart-to-heart level, you know, at a, at a real level. And so flippancy can be used by a person so that they're, they're just always insulated um, from going deep. They're, they always stay on, on the surface. Um, and, you know, it's, it's commonly a, a more of an, a, an emotional, obviously there's a, there's a particular emotional immaturity there. And, but it's something we have to get past if we're ever going to get real with God. Okay. Um, All right, moving to chapter 12. He's, he's talking about, so I'm just going to kind of talk about this because I see this all the time as well. Um, it's kind of on that second page of chapter 12 there where he's talking about this reluctance towards God. Um, all humans at nearly all times have some such reluctance toward God. But when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt this reluctance is increased tenfold. In this state, your patient will not omit, but he will increasingly dislike his religious duties. He will think about them as little as he feels he decently can beforehand and forget them as soon as possible when they are over. He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. Now, this this happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, right, uh, eat the fruit, and they immediately hide from God. They immediately hide from God. And people do this all the time. You know, you commit the sin, the, maybe the sin you just you keep committing or whatever it is. Um, you commit that sin, and all of a sudden you don't want to pray. And all of a sudden you don't want to go to church. And then you're away from church for two weeks, and then it's three weeks, and you haven't said your prayers for, you know, for quite some time. Well, what, what happens is we get this sort of, um, uh, the, it, well, that would be too strong of a word, but what he's using here is, um, you know, a reluctance toward God, that 
And it's interesting with Catholics because Catholics will often, I, I've had this so many times too, Catholics will stay away from the confessional for years and years and years and years because they don't believe they can be forgiven. Or they just don't want to deal with it, you know? They're embarrassed. I don't want to go and do that. I'm embarrassed. Or I'm fearful. Or I'm, maybe I'll be rejected. Or, or maybe if Father hears that I did that, he'll, he'll reject me or he'll say something harsh. Or and people build up this stuff. So they don't go to confession for years. But then they still maybe go to communion. And then they feel guilty for going to communion. So they just layer that on top of there. And it just gets more and more and more and more. Um, until they finally just get tired, thankfully, of carrying these burdens. You know, they just go to confession and get rid of it. And once a person figures that out of, like, I, so I can just go to confession and be forgiven and, and I can let it all go. Yes, you can let it all go. Now, that doesn't mean, well, then I can just go and sin some more. No, but, but that, that sacrament really comes to life, if you will, when a person, you know, for me as, as the priest, when the person, you can tell that person feels that burden being lifted that they've been carrying. And that's why it's such a beautiful sacrament. And I just don't think confessing directly to God could give you that. You know, there's something about, and I think there's probably some of you who, who might attest to it, but there's something about telling the priest your sin and hearing the words, I absolve you of your sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There, there's, uh, and it's not magic. It's, it's of course grace. But, and, but there's something even psychologically powerful about, you know, telling somebody else that and unburdening yourself. And of course, you're you're telling, I mean, you're telling the priest, but you're you're really telling God directly. Okay. And so what? But but what happens prior to that is often this reluctance, which, as he says, if you can use that to just keep driving a wedge. You know, and, and I, I, again, I've talked to pe I talk to people throughout the entirety of my priesthood, and that's that's how it starts. The wedge just what's a wedge? I don't know. I don't know how to do a thing of a wedge, but the wedge gets driven in. You know, and the distance that it gets further and further and further. Then all of a sudden, two weeks from mass, not going to mass turns into a month, turns into six months, turns into a year, turns into a decade. You know, and, and I've, I've talked to people that this has been the reality for them. That's how it starts. That's how Satan gets at us, and that's, that's what he's talking about here. Um, and, yeah, that's what he talks about. He talks about stealing away years. Um, this is toward the end, the very end of that, that chapter. Nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels and whistling of tunes that he does not like, or in the long dim labyrinth of reveries, that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. So even these small sins are used. It's not even the big sins. It's these small sins that begin to drive this wedge. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young, young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember... 
The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. How many times I've had somebody say, Father, I should go to confession, but you know, it's not like I, I've killed anybody or anything. To which I say, well, that's fantastic. Um, I'm glad you haven't killed anybody, but um, it's, it's not about that. You know? It's not just about, about getting rid of the biggest sins. It's about this progression toward or progression from God. And we're either going in one direction or the other. You know, generally, you know, for people who are, who are somewhat attentive to their spirituality, there's that ebb and flow. Um, I, I once had a spiritual director who said it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a, a bicycle tire. You know, you're always moving forward, but there's a backward motion to it also at times. But you're, you know, you're moving forward, but then there's backward, and then you're moving forward. But there is a gradual going forward. It's just that sometimes that backward motion can feel interminable. Um, Conversely, a person can be going the opposite direction as well. You know, that they're slowly moving away from God and toward hell, and they're only somewhat conscious of it. And, and so I think the frightening thing about what Lewis is presenting here is not how one particular act could, could lose us salvation, but how a person could just sort of get lulled to sleep and just live a sort of useless life, never really living for anything, never willing to die for anything, never, never, you know, just sort of this lukewarm existence into hell and that they just drift there, you know, because they, you know, after all, they were a good sort of person. Every person I've ever buried, their family says how good they were. I just don't know if that's true. I mean, it might be true. There were probably times of goodness, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people I buried were not superstar saints, you know? And actually, when you hear their story, I'm praying really hard for their soul because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying I know. I mean, I, when I had my dad's funeral, I prayed really hard for his soul, but he was a, and he was a really good man. Um, but there's other people that I think, wow, they, if, if people said of my life what they said of his life, I would be ashamed. I'll just be honest. I'd be ashamed because it's just not enough. It's just not, I, for me, it's just not enough to be kind of good, you know? Just not, it's not enough to have been just sort of a good kind of guy. I don't know. I mean, that seems like a really low bar. Um, Anyway, all right, so seven. Wait, we already did seven. Where are we? That's a different manila folder. All right, <laughs> chapter 13, pleasure. Oh, so this is, uh, yeah, this is where there's this second conversion that takes place for, uh, 
for Bob, the patient. Um, is that what I said I'd call him last time, Bob? Yeah. Okay, we'll call him Bob. Um, so Bob, that'll make it easier. <laughs> Who are you talking about? Is it the devil? Is it his cousin or nephew or second cousin removed? All right, so Bob is the man, the person. So he's had the second conversion, and, um, and there was this moment of grace. And so this is, this is how Screwtape sort of talks about that. As you ought to have known, the asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. It is the enemy's most barbarous weapon and generally appears when he is directly present to the patient under certain modes not yet classified. Some humans are permanently surrounded by it and are therefore inaccessible to us, like Faye. But as and now for your blunders, this is really fascinating. To, uh, it's just fascinating to me, but it seems so true. Anyway, first of all, this was your, your, your first blunder. You allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it. What's so cool about that? So I listen to music just because I enjoy it. And I actually think like it is transcendent. I believe that it's transcendent. There's certain music that I listen to and I think this is elevating me. And it's not, I'm a rock and roller, so it's not classical music. I mean, it could be blues, it could be rock, it could be a lot of things. But there's something about, for me, there's something about music that elevates you know, my mind and my emotions and, and it's amazing to me. It's, it's an incredible gift. And sometimes books, Lewis is one of those guys. I, I just read Lewis and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's great. I just you know, sometimes I, I even, I just talk to my dog. Did you, did you read that? <laughs> um, so what's cool though is, is, you know, he's saying that this is how God makes his move through simple joys, through simple pleasures. Some people love to, to go out in the woods and, and hike and walk and, you know, and I actually love the, the, the woods relative to, to the desert any day of the week. Um, some people like to fish. I don't understand that. I don't know how God <laughs> likes that. But, um, <laughs> but the point is that he's saying, because you allowed these two joys, one of these is a walk, you know. The second one is you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have a tea there, a walk through the country he really likes. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. This is so important for us, to have these simple pleasures in our life. Those little things that we just like to do because they're fun and we get joy from them because God makes his appearance in these moments, you know? And, and sometimes I think we get so busy, we have so many things going on, you know, that we don't make room for the simple joys because we feel like we have to do things. Um, when we remove leisure from our life, we lose so much. It's so important to have that, that balanced life if we can. And so he's telling, uh, you know, he's telling, he's instructing um, Wormwood here that you cannot allow him any real anything, including pain. He says that, and when we read the problem of pain, we'll really get at this, but uh, the characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, 
give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. You do not want to give anyone a, a touchstone of reality. Keep them in as much fiction as possible. But pain brings reality just as much as pleasure does. Um, how can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember always that he really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing their selves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they've done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts that when they are wholly his, they will, more than, they will be more themselves than ever. So to become a self in Christ is the goal. To become a self in Christ is the goal. And when we detach ourselves from our self-will, we know best. I know better than God, essentially. And when we stop doing that and saying, God knows better than I do, I'm going to let him be in charge of my life, we truly become ourselves. Which makes sense because God made us. He made us for, first for himself. He didn't make us for ourselves. He made us first that he might love us. The first movement of, of creating us is that he would love us and then he would desire that love be returned. But the first, but he always loves what he has created. That's always the first movement, right? I mean, just like a parent, I mean, you, you always love your children even when they're awful. Maybe not as much, you know, or you, you think about it a little bit. But of course you love them. How much more so God? So because of that then, God, God made us so that the, the way that we will, the only way we will be truly happy is when we give ourselves completely over to him. And the whole goal of life is learning how to do that more and more and more. The more that we can grow in that, the more that then we will actually become ourselves because to truly become ourselves, according to God's de design, necessitates that we, that we become un unified with him, with his son. Okay. Um, good. Oh, moving on. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake and without caring two pence what other people say about it is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so this, this is an interesting thing, too, because it, it talks about the... the um, you know, a person who's willing to truly and disinterestedly enjoy one thing for its own sake. You know, because a thing, it could be music, it could be, I don't know, I mean, it could be, uh, you know, walks in the woods, it could be nature, it could be, it could be a lot of things. 
uh, a book, as he says, but to enjoy one thing for its, its own good, just because it's a good in itself, regardless of what anybody else thinks of it, meaning that you're doing it because you love it, brings a certain pure joy that, again, any pure joy like that is always going to connect us with God. It's always going to connect. But if you're reading the book because, you know, well, I better read that book because everyone else is going to class tonight, you know, um, which that might motivate you, you know, I want to go because I'm with the community. But if, it, if it's sort of this, um, and that's one thing, and that's okay, but if, if we're doing it just to be seen, you know what I mean? Like, well, I just want to be, you know, I want to get brownie points with Father John, you know, so I'm going to go to his class, um, and maybe he'll like me more. I won't. Um, <laughs> you know, you get it, though. It's the intentionality behind it there, right, which can corrupt the good that would other be presumably beneficial to us. You know, reading that book because it's the book that everyone else is reading. Well, no, just do it because it's joyful to you, not because anybody else has a claim on you. Okay, 14. Oh, there's a good one. I like this one. Oh, I'm going to read a lot here. That's okay. We're, we're, I'm making good, good time here, so we'll, we won't, lest I keep you till 10 o'clock on our last night. Humility. Chapter 14 is about humility. Um, and he says, he says, your patient, Bob, has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Have you drawn his attention to the fact that he's become humble? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. That's such a great insight. Have you ever done that? I've done that. I've done that so much. I don't even want to, I can get embarrassed thinking about it as a priest, you know? When I thought really, really good, <laughs> I thought I did a really great job. Hey, you did a really great job. And then I'm like, no, well, yeah, well, yeah, I did. And then I just start laughing at myself because it's just ridiculous because you start going in this cycle of like, oh, I did a really good job. Well, I shouldn't think that way. Well, but I did. Yeah, but don't think that way about it. And then you just like, at a certain point, you're like, that's ridiculous. Humor is such a great defense against against temptation and Satan. It's if we if we can take ourselves less seriously in a lot of ways and laugh about the fact that even when we're in the midst of that temptation, laugh about it. It's amazing how much it can diffuse the temptation. It's amazing. Um, but but also the other insight is, yeah, as soon as you think you're being humble, it's precisely at that time you are not. Right? Um, by this virtue, humility, 
Our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from self to him and to the man's neighbors. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him not think of it as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that's not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than the truth. Thus, introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to be, believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools, right? Um, I remember when I was really young and I was doing music and stuff and people would say, oh, you played the piano great. And I didn't know how to handle it yet. I was, you know, I was in my teens. I'd be like, no, no, it wasn't that good. Or, you know, I'd say, well, I made these mistakes and then I did this mistake. I'm sure the person just kind of walked away like, geez, I was just trying to give him a compliment, you know. <laughs> but I was doing this, you know. I was, <laughs> I was trying to guard against becoming proud by... Um, by, by knocking myself down, by being critical of myself, thinking that this was actually being humble. It was actually just lying. It was actually just, you know, buying into this untruth, you know. Father, you're a really good teacher. No, I'm not. Well, who does that serve? Why the heck have you taught over 20 hours of classes then if you're so bad at it, you know? It's good that we have gifts and skills, thank goodness, and that we can all bring them to bear on the parish, and everybody's got stuff. It's really great. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but, but one of the ways that a person can think they're being humble is not just sort of self-effacing humor, but, but actually being severe with themselves or denying the truth of their gifts, which, by the way, are God-given. So in, in denying them, we're actually denying God's God's graciousness, you know, and, and, and goodness that he's given us. And since what they are trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, a beautiful woman saying she's not beautiful, they cannot succeed in believing it, and we have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to, to achieve the impossible. So they're still focused on themselves, denying the very thing that is actually true, and the whole point is they're still focused on themselves. They're still being prideful, but in a completely different way. To, con to anticipate the enemy's strategy, we, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring a man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in that fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another, than someone else. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. I don't know about you, but I mean, there was certainly a time, um, you know, I think back to my younger days, I think so... I was all doing music and playing music and everything, and everybody was so competitive, you know, um, that if somebody else was doing better, th then, like, it would just make me angry, you know, 
because I would be so competitive. I would have to outdo them. I couldn't rejoice in the fact that somebody else was good at something. I had to be better than them. It's, you know, the essence of, of competitiveness. And, um, you know, it takes a long time to, to kind of, well, okay, it took me a long time to get past that, you know. And I'm sure other people have, have had similar such experiences. But, but to get to the point where we can rejoice that other people are just as good at us as us or even better than us at certain things is a wonderful thing. So the ability to just rejoice in goodness, no matter where it comes from, even if it comes from us, you know? Well, last night I was down in Ash Fork and it was amazing for me with the kids. We had about 30 kids, 25 kids, and we we're sitting there and, and just talking, just talking. They were asking father questions. It was, it was awesome, it was so cool. And uh, it was really, really, and it was just good. You know, it was just good. It was just uh, a lot of goodness. So to, to, and I went home just feeling so lifted up, you know. So to be able to just rejoice in goodness no matter where it comes from, whether it comes from us or whether it comes from somebody else, you know, not to be competitive or, or to, to be envious, right? Those are the, those are the enemies of this. <clears throat> He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. When we can see each other as glorious and excellent things, people, you know, when we can see each other in this way, this goodness in each other, and see it in ourselves, that's what the Lord is after. And that's also how we get to the point where we can actually love to the degree he desires. So God's whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. A man is not called, usually, to have an opinion of his own talents at all, since he can very well go on improving them to the best of his ability without deciding on his own precise niche in the temple of fame. The doctrine that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. Well, I guess I was in the middle of a sentence, sorry. The enemy will also try to render real in the patient's mind a doctrine which they all profess but find it difficult to bring home to their feelings. That doctrine is that they did not create themselves, that their talents were given them, and that they might as well be proud of the color of their hair. But how often, you know, is it such a temptation to hold on to our talents as if they're ours and, and we sort of crafted them or created them or worked on them. No doubt we have an obligation to, to refine them. And, and normally we would want to because when we find our talents, it's, this is a good thing to refine and to continue to grow because it ought to give us joy. But, um, but ultimately we have to recognize that our talents, you know, some people are talented at, at speaking or music or athletics or making money or whatever, none of it belongs to us because we didn't give it to ourselves. It all came, it's all, um, it's all given to us by God. And so when we realize that these gifts are meant to be given back to God, you know, then it, it, it helps us to get away from that pride of, of thinking they're just ours. You know, when the gift is just mine for myself, then like, I mean, you know, so I have all those books that I've read and all the stuff that I've learned and, 
you know, instead of Tuesday night teaching all of you, I could just sit at the house and revel in all the stuff I know. Well, <laughs> talking to my Shih Tzu puppy about all the philosophy I know, great. What good is that, you know? That would be horrible for me. It would be horrible for my soul. But when we realize that God's love and God's giving is diffusive, it goes out like a rock thrown in a calm pond, and that we're called to do the same thing, that the gifts given to us are meant to be diffusive, that that's essentially what love is. Love always goes out, right? And the gifts given need to go out, right? This is, this is a way of being which really protects us, I think, from pridefulness. Okay, let's do the last... We'll do 15 as the last one, and then we'll pick up next week on 16, okay? We'll do 15 here. This is, a, this is another really good one here, um, that Satan wants us to be focused on the future. Wants us focused on the future, um, because that's where all the anxiety comes from. People don't generally have anxiety about the past, and the present is so coming and going, that it quickly becomes the past anyway. People only have anxiety about what might happen. And so, you know, what, what uh, Screwtape is, is telling Wormwood here is get, get Bob focused on future stuff. And the, the crazy thing about future stuff, and this is also another way of sort of dealing with anxiety, people who, a lot, a lot of people struggle, struggle with anxiety. And, um, you know, so there's different sort of mindfulness techniques. But one of the ways to, to think about this is that the future doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is the present. The past doesn't exist, and the future doesn't exist. And all of the things we're worried about, all of the things we're anxious about, don't actually exist. They have no being. So we get ourselves worked up, you know? We get ourselves wor worked up and worried and fearful about all this future stuff that doesn't even exist. It's, not, it's truly no thing, it's nothing. And if, you know, when we recognize that, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and so the, some of the mindfulness techniques that people use is they, they try to center people on the present. Just get them to think about present stuff. What are the things right now that I can do? And that's where God wants us, is in the present. Because it's the only place we can actually meet him and engage him. We can't engage God in the past, and of course we can't engage him in the future because we're not in the future. It's the only place where, as Lewis says, and it, you know, it makes sense, where, where, where time and eternity meet because we only live in the present. God lives in eternity. So, so in that sense, God could communicate himself across the entire spectrum of past, present, and future, but we cannot. We can only live now. So the only way that we can meet God and experience God is now. Okay. I should probably read some of Lewis instead of just telling you stuff. Um, okay. The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things. To eternity itself, which, by the way, eternity is not the future, right? Eternity is outside of time. He wants them to attend chiefly to two things. To eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. 
In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. We can only act and be free in the present. We cannot act and be free in either the past or the future. Our business is to get them away from the eternal, keep death before you always, right? We're eternal beings, and also from the present. It is far better, though, to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. I just was talking about this stuff. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, the encouragement we have given to those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Right? All of those gaze forward. Let's see. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future, too, just so much as, the ne- as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty. Though its material is borrowed from the future, the duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is now straw splitting. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. We do. We do. We want people to place their heart in the future, to place their treasure in the future. That's what Satan wants. God's ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest nor kind nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. Okay. So the, the um, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, what is it? Tomorrow, there, uh, tomorrow will take care of itself. Is that how it goes? So our Lord was even kind of clear about that whole deal. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't have fear. Don't have anxiety. Um, let tomorrow take care of tomorrow. You know, focus on today. And, of course, Lewis goes into, well, does that mean I don't set my alarm for tomorrow? Your hair splitting. You know, do I, do I make the coffee for tomorrow? You know, obviously he's not talking about that. That's pedantic to, to go there. The, the point is placing all of our eggs in that basket of the future, and it gets us off the moment. 
You know, we're always gazing somewhere else, never attending to where we meet God, meet one another, and where charity and love exist. Okay, see you next week. Don't forget we have some books up here. Uh, 